In sports, usually there are no such things as second chances. If you miss a basketball shot, if you miss a free throw, if you miss a three-pointer, you don't get to do it again. You can plead with the referees, but they're not going to give it to you. Such is the nature of sports. And if you've played any type of sports, I bet there are times you wish you could take that shot again. You could set up properly. You could do it over. But there is only one sport that I know of where you can take another shot without any penalties. And that is in the difficult, frustrating game of golf. For those of you who are golfers, you know why. In the 1920s, there was a man by the name of David Mulligan. He played this difficult game of golf and he hit off a tee shot and hit a very poor shot into the trees. Frustrated as golf can be, he just decided, you know what, I want to re-hit my ball again. And there's nothing that says I can't. And he did that. He hit the ball again. Friends laughed at him. They made fun of him. They called it a mulligan, a do-over. A hundred years later, in golf, when you speak of a mulligan, it is known as a do-over. It is legal in recreational play. I know because I have availed of a mulligan quite a number of times in my failed attempts to play golf. In life, many of us would love to have a mulligan, a do-over, a second chance, whether we have messed up a decision, we've said something that we wish we hadn't said, or we did something that we simply want another chance at. Does life avail us the opportunity for a second chance? Yes, it does. In fact, Christianity is all about second chances. It is the only religion that affords a person the opportunity for a second chance. Why? Because the God we worship is a God of second chances. As we continue our study in the book of Zechariah this morning, as you know, we've been looking at the overarching theme of God inviting His wayward people to return to Him in intimate fellowship. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. That theme verse for this book in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me, and I will return to you. Why are we to return to Him? Well, in this fourth night vision of Zechariah's 8, God will give another reason why we are to return to Him. And that is because He is the God of second chances. We want to unpack that this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, as we exposit verses 1 to 10. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Zechariah is found after the book of Haggai, before the book of Malachi. It's in the Old Testament. If you've hit the book of Matthew, then you've gone too far. Go back. Zechariah chapter 3. What does second chances really look like? What are the implications when we are the recipients of a second chance? Let's take a look. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to oppose him. 
The setting of this fourth night vision is out of a courtroom. Joshua is Israel's high priest. This is not the Joshua of Moses' time. This is Joshua, the high priest in the post-exilic period. He represents Israel standing before God. God is mentioned as the angel of the Lord. And there in this courtroom of heaven, Joshua is being accused by Satan. What is Satan accusing him of? Satan is accusing him, implied of his priestly duties, which he did with unclean hands. Satan is saying, Joshua is unfit for ministry because of what he has done, because of his iniquities. He is representing the people of Israel. Israel is unfit to be your chosen people because Israel has abandoned you. Israel has left you. Satan, by his many names, we know his character, is an adversary. He is never your friend. He is also known as the accuser. He is someone who is always opposing us before the Heavenly Father. And that's how Satan often discourages us. He makes us think that somehow we're not worthy to serve God. He says we're unworthy because of our sinful lives. He says we are unqualified because of our lack of spirituality, or somehow that we're damaged goods because of a decision we made in the past. There is no hope for these people Satan accuses us of. But how wonderful that God doesn't respond in the same manner. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In this wonderful verse, the Lord is there to defend, to protect. He stands before God the Father to intercede on our behalf against the accuser. In fact, notice that the Lord rebukes Satan twice for emphasis. Rebuke means he tells Satan, Satan, you're wrong. You're wrong. Now, are Satan's accusations really wrong? No, in fact, they're true. They were true about Israel. Israel had abandoned God. Israel had left God. But the Lord rebukes Satan because he says, I have chosen them still. I love them with everlasting love. Because of my gracious love, because of my choice of these people, I rebuke you. In fact, there's a question posed at the end of verse 2. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, what does that mean? The fire refers to the captivity of Israel by Babylon. And everyone thought that because of God's disciplinary action in this captivity, that the nation of Israel would cease to exist. But God says, is this not a brand? Is this not a fire stick that I have picked out from the ashes? I have chosen them. And that's why I rebuke you, Satan. It's similar in our lives. Satan does have a lot of things to say against us that are true. He can say of me, Stephen, you're dishonest. Stephen, you're a liar. Stephen, you don't walk faithfully in my ways. Stephen has abandoned me. Stephen does not deserve to be standing behind this pulpit because of what he's done in the past. And he can say that to the Heavenly Father, and it's all true. 
just as He can say those things about you. But because God loves us, chooses us, He defends us. Whenever the accuser accuses us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, intercedes for us before the Father, and He says, by my blood, by my blood. But Stephen has done this. By my blood, he can stand here. But Stephen has done this, God. Aren't you disappointed? Jesus says, by my blood. And that's the picture here. You see, what I want you to see in these first two verses is the first principle about second chances. Number one, if you're taking notes. The basis for true second chances is God's love. The basis for true second chances is God's love. You see, a holy God cannot simply dismiss sin. There must be a basis. There must be a reason. There must be a reason to acquit us. And the basis of God giving us a second chance is the love of God shown through Christ Jesus. Do you ever think about this? Why in the world would God give you a second chance? Do you deserve it? I certainly don't. As I examine my life, I realize I shouldn't be standing here. I'm not deserving of God's goodness in my life. Why would he give Stephen Tan a second chance? Actually, it's not even a second chance. It's a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, a hundred chances. I'm probably looking through my life, I'm, I'm probably on my 1400th chance. Maybe probably even more, 14,000 chance. Why would he give me one more chance? The Bible says because he has chosen me, as he has chosen you, because of his love. The basis of why God is giving you and I a second chance is because of his love. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the Lord. Joshua, the high priest representing Israel, stands before the angel of the Lord, God himself, dressed, the Bible says, in a filthy robe. If you understand Hebrew, the word used here literally means excrement splattered garment. Wow, what a vivid image. This is the most vile thing that he is wearing. He is ministering before the presence of God in this filthy, ceremonially unclean condition representing the state of Israel at that time in the eyes of God. Filth. Dirty robes. And I, I can just imagine as the accusations are flying that Joshua is just kind of standing there, probably head bowed down, feeling very unworthy in this excrement splattered garment in the presence of a holy God. You see, my friends, when we compare our sin in the presence of the purity of the holiness of God, and our sin is like dung, very unclean, the most vile thing you can think of. 
This is a stark picture of sin. Any sin in your life, anything that you are hiding in the dark regions of your heart that you don't think anyone sees is an abomination in the eyes of God. The problem of our Christian life oftentimes is that we don't see sin for what it is. Instead of trying to live a holy life, we simply try to justify our sin. We simply think to ourselves, well, we're not as bad as someone else. As long as my conscience doesn't bother me, as long as I'm better than that other person, then you know what? My standing before God must be pretty good. Sin is sin. And if you come before holy God with any unresolved sin in your life, however white lie it may be, then it is an abomination to the Lord. It is filthy. And perhaps that's how some people are this morning. Standing and worshiping God, singing those songs, but figuratively standing before God in filthy garments. Is there hope? Look what the Lord commands in verse 4. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Isn't that wonderful? God gives Israel a second chance by figuratively instructing and commanding the removing of Joshua's filthy clothes, representing his sin and his guilt, the sin and guilt of a nation which God has forgiven, and to give them a, a brand spanking new beautiful robe. It's a beautiful picture. God does not leave Joshua in that condition. God says, remove those robes, give him a new one. What a wonderful image of what Christ's atoning blood does for us. When we accept God's free gift of salvation, which is the forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, then we too have our filthy garments taken away. And we are given new ones, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Our standing before the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ is not one who wears filthy robes, but it is of one who wears a brand spanking new white robe. And the wonderful thing is, if we were to soil that one, the Lord figuratively has a closet full of white robes ready to give to us. You see, what I want you to see is the second principle, number two in verses 3 and 4, about second chances. Number two, true second chances involves a cleansing of our sinful record. True second chances involves a cleansing of our sinful record. The changing of robes is a beautiful image of what God does. He wipes away the record of our sin. Remember the story of the prodigal son? When the prodigal son came back to the father, oh, it was one of the father's instructions, give him new robes. The robe he's wearing is probably stinky in the pits of the pig pen. He is my son. 
give him new robes. The Lord says to his people and he says to us, return to me because I alone can provide true second chances. I can expunge your records. Now you may say, well, pastor, I can also give second chances. I've forgiven other people. But I beg to differ. There's only one who can truly give second chances. And that is the one who can cleanse our sinful record. You may argue with me, but let me ask you a question. If you're a businessman or businesswoman, how many of you would hire a convicted criminal? Anyone? No one. You have a need in your company. There's a man who's qualified or a woman who's qualified. But when you do the MBI clearance and you do a background check, it says there, convicted criminal, convicted felon. Would you hire them? Probably not. Now, you know they've already served their time in jail. They've already been given by the civil authorities a second chance. That's why a lot of criminals go back into crime. Because they find it very hard to find a job. Because their record says convicted criminal. You see, we may say we can give second chances to others. But we really don't. How about... In the case of a friend, you forgive a friend who has really wronged you, someone who has really done something bad to you, and they beg for a second chance, give me another chance. And you say, okay. But if you're honest with yourself, you treat them differently now, right? Someone who's really wronged you, you put up with them. But that relationship is no longer how it was before. You treat them differently. Because you still remember what they did. And you'll give the occasional high. But it won't be the loving embrace that it was before. How about in sports? When you make a mistake, you keep fumbling the ball. You keep dropping the ball. You keep passing it to the wrong team. And he said, coach, I'm so sorry. Coach, I'm so sorry. Coach, it's okay. Relax. I forgive you. We'll give you another chance. Coach, don't kick me off the team. Okay, I won't kick you off the team. But then you realize he doesn't play you as much anymore. Instead of starting the game, you are now coming off the bench. Because he remembers. He's giving you a second chance. But it's not a true second chance. How about someone who's broken the deepest trust? A husband who has an affair. A woman who has an affair. Now, you may come in reconciliation. You may give each other a second chance, but it's not the same anymore. And we dealt with couples in that situation. It takes years of counseling and reconciliation to restore that trust back to what it was before. You see, we can't give true second chances. There's only one. And that involves the cleansing of our sinful record. That's what God does. He exchanges the filthy garments and remembers our sins no more. True second chances involves the cleansing of our sinful record. 
And that can only happen, and that does happen, because of what Christ did on the cross. I'm reminded of a story told by Pastor Dean. He tells the story of how there was a wonderful lady in his church who was an American Airlines flight attendant. When she found out that her pastor was on his way to India for ministry, she asked for his itinerary and flight schedule. She wanted to alert her colleagues who would be working that flight to tell them her pastor would be on board to treat him well. And as Pastor Dean recounts, as I got to my seat, immediately one of the flight attendants came up to me and said, well, you must be Dr. Dean. I nodded yes, and we spoke for a few minutes. Before long, another one of the flight attendants came up to me and said, well, you must be Dr. Dean. And we chatted for a few moments as I acknowledged her greetings. I think every flight attendant working that flight stopped to greet me. By then, he writes, I'm sure the people around me must have thought, who is this Dr. Dean? Well, later in the flight, there was a medical emergency at the back of the airplane. The flight attendants came walking to the cabin asking, is there a doctor on the plane? We have a medical emergency. Apparently, there was no response, so they came through a second time. We have an emergency. Is there a, a doctor on board? Now, the flight attendants knew I was a pastor. But he writes, I'm sure the people around me were thinking, come on, Dr. Dean, get up and do something. I felt like people were staring at me, wondering, why is Dr. Dean just sitting there? I wanted to stand up and announce, Hey, I'm not what you think I am. I'm one of those doctors that really can't help anybody. Everybody can tell you they will give you a second chance. But there is only one who can truly grant them because he's the one that cleansed your sinful record by his blood. I want you to go home and think about this principle. Verse 5. Then I, this is Zacharias speaking, then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. The prophet Zechariah chimes in. He's excited. Remember, he is a priest prophet. And so he is excited about what is happening. And he chimes in and he suggests to the angelic dressers, hey, make sure you put a clean hat on Joshua's head, which they were doing along with the other garments. But what I want you to notice is the last part of verse 5. The angel of the Lord stood by. God was there observing all that was happening and he sovereignly approves. He approved of Zachariah's suggestion for Joshua to have a clean hat as well. He was directing all the changes in Joshua's condition representing the nation of Israel. Our God in the same way when we are forgiven is there approving 
Because when Jesus says, by my blood, God says, okay, I accept. He or she is approved. And the angel of the Lord stood by. My friends, more than simply expunging our sinful record, the shed blood of Jesus Christ restores us to a position of approval. We are approved. God is pleased with us. He no longer has ill feelings. And that's our third principle, number three. True second chances restores a person to approval. True second chances restores a person to full approval. When someone forgives you and gives you a true second chance, he puts you back into the position that you once held. He doesn't knock you down a notch. When someone gives you a true second chance, even though you drop the ball, he still puts you on the first team. Even though you've messed up, a true second chance says it's as if you've never done it. And that's hard for people. But that is how God operates. He remembers our sin no more. I remember the story of a little boy who was in the supermarket with his mother. That little boy was having a particularly naughty day. And his mother had forbidden him to touch anything else in the grocery store. While his mother was going up an aisle, she heard a, a huge crash and turned around to see her son standing with a can in his hand beside an aisle full of cans on the floor. See, this little boy had decided to grab a can from the bottom of the display and said hundreds of cans tumbling down. Well, mom's face was bright red, a mixture of embarrassment and anger. She stormed down the aisle and picked up the boy and placed him firmly in the child's seat of that push cart. Don't you dare move another inch, young man, the mother scolded the boy. After a few minutes had gone by, the boy pucked up some courage and said, Mommy, you said the other day that when God forgives our sins, he buries them at the bottom of the deepest ocean. Didn't you say that? The mother replied through clenched teeth, Yes, son. And mommy, the boy said, You said that it didn't matter what we did. God would never dig up those things again. You said that God would never go fishing for that which he has buried in the deepest part of the ocean. Didn't you say that? Again, with clenched teeth, she said, yes, son. Well, mom, the little boy said, I've got a feeling that when we get home, you're going to go deep sea fishing. And that's the truth. People can tell other people they'll give them a second chance. But we get historical. And when that moment hits and in our moment of anger, we're going to bring up something that our friend did, our husband did, our wife did, our kids did. But that's not how God operates. 
When God gives a second chances, He restores a person to full approval. Hebrews 8.12 For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. God doesn't go deep sea fishing for our sins. We are restored to a position of approval and that is truly a second chance. Doesn't matter what we've done. We ask for forgiveness. God says, by my blood, you are now restored. Verse 6 and 7. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. And I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. When given a second chance, the angel admonishes Joshua with two conditions and three results. Now that you've been given another chance, Joshua, this is how you are to live, and this is what you will be doing. The two conditions, verse 7. First, you must walk in my ways. This describes the personal attitude that we are to have towards God. The nation of Israel was to have towards God, and we are also commanded to walk in His ways. You are now cleansed. Do what is right. Walk in my ways. The second condition, keep my command. Live in obedience. Follow the boundaries and rules that I've set up for your good. Be faithful. And because you are cleansed and you do those things, this is what's going to happen. You will, number one, judge my house. You will govern God's house, God's people, God's temple for the nation of Israel. But for us as well, the Bible says we will co-heir with Christ. In the millennial reign of Christ, we will come down, we will have a responsibility to reign with Christ. You will have charge of my courts. You have a responsibility to keep others pure. He is telling Joshua, the high priest, but implicit in that is the nation of Israel. You will be that light to draw others to me. And that is also our charge as well. And then you will have a place to walk among those who stand here. Who are those who stands there? Those are the people who are holy, standing before a holy God. The implication is you will have free access to God. Your relationship with God will be unhindered when you have put on your clean robes. And that's why we often say sin hinders our fellowship with God. Because a holy God can have nothing to do with sin. But in the cleansed state that we are in, we have free access to God. It would be like the days when Adam walked with God in the, in the beautiful Garden of Eden. And he just talked with God. There was no sin that disqualified him. And we have that now. Because we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We don't need to go through a priest for confession. In the name of Jesus Christ, we can talk one-on-one -on -one with God through His Son. And that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. It is by His blood that we are able to walk with Him. Now let me encapsulate these two conditions and three results. You know what this is? This is a transformed life. And here we draw out our fourth principle, number four. 
the result of being given a true second chance is a transformed life. The result of being given a true second chance is a transformed life. When you are given a second chance to live your life for the Lord, how will you live it? Will you go back to sin? Or will there be a change? You know, in sports, or in golf specifically, when you take a mulligan, when you do it over, if your first shot went into the tree, it would be ridiculous if you aimed your second shot into the tree and your third shot into the tree. What you want when you do it over is you want your second shot, your do-over, to go straight down the fairway, right? That's why you and I want a second chance at life because we want to make the right decision when we've made the wrong one. We want to take back what we've said. But isn't it ironic and funny that when we live out our Christian life and we pray and ask God for forgiveness and to give us a second chance, we do the same thing over again. On a Sunday morning, we say, God, give me a second chance. I won't do it ever again. I know I'm wrong. I'm, I've sinned. It displeases you. And Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, we do the very exact same thing over and over and over again. It is a wonderment why God would give us these additional chances. But He does. When we ask God for a second chance and He grants it, it is imperative upon the one who requests it to then live a different way. And that's why the result of being granted a second chance must be a transformed life. You and I have the opportunity to live our lives anew. Grab that chance. God is a patient God. But the Bible also speaks about God's patience running out because He's a holy God. Now the emphasis in the Scripture is on God's grace and mercy. But there are times that God's patience will run out and He will discipline us. Do not wait until the point where God is to discipline you. When God gives you a second chance, live out a transformed life. Verse 8 to 10. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stones are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Verses 8 to 10 are messianic prophecies for that time. You see, God was telling the people through the prophet Zechariah that the future cleansing of Israel was linked to the coming sin remover. There in the Old Testament, they were awaiting the Messiah. We know that it refers to the Messiah because three messianic titles are used here. My servant, the branch, the stone. 
The Bible says Israel will realize the benefits of his death when he returns to earth a second time because they rejected him when he came the first time. But it is then that he forgives the nation of Israel. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And that day, everyone will invite his neighbors under his vine, under his fig tree. Now for us who live in this age of grace, who live after the cross, we are recipients of that blessing of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Messiah has come. The work of salvation is done. It's, it's completed. It is finished. Jesus said on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. What is finished? The work of salvation has been completed on the cross. And then he explains that our part in this is to acknowledge our sins and receive by faith that gift of forgiveness. And here's what verses 8 to 10 tell me this fifth and final principle. The great news that number five, in Jesus, everyone gets a second chance. Isn't that great? In Jesus, everyone gets a second chance. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what's happened to you. How horrible it may be, whether people know about it or not. In Jesus, everyone gets a second chance. How then will you live your life? You have been given a second chance. You've been given a fresh new robe. The filthy garment has been taken away. You put on fresh new robes. Are you going to leave the sanctuary this morning and go jump? in a cesspool of mud and excrement, because that's what a lot of Christians do every Sunday. Or will you go out and say, wow, I've been given a second chance by God. I'm going to live my life for Him. When I think about men and women of the Bible who were given second chances, there were many. They were people who did not waste God's second chance. They knew that they were given a second chance based on God's love and grace. They knew that their record was wiped clean. They knew that they were standing in approval before God. And it resulted in a transformation of their life. Remember Abraham? Abraham is the father of Israel. Man, we preached about. But Abraham lied. Abraham lied to save his family. He didn't trust God to protect his family. And so he lied. But God gave him a second chance. What did he do? He lived a life of faith. And he's known as one of the fathers of faith. For a man who didn't trust God, God gave him a second chance. And he learned to live by faith. What about David? Remember David? King David? David, that shepherd boy, God promoted to be the king of Israel. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And do you know what the punishment for adultery was in the Old Testament law? It was death. God could have struck him down dead at that moment. And imagine the fact that he covered up his adultery by having Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. He was a murderer. And the punishment in the Old Testament law was also death. But God was gracious. And God gave David a second chance. 
And if we look at the life of David, he lived a life that was changed. That's why the Bible tells us in notes of David, David is a man after my own heart. How about Jonah? Remember Jonah? Jonah, the prophet of God. God tells you, know, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And the answer of Jonah, no. Do you know what happens to a prophet of God who tells God no? He's put to death. And Jonah has the audacity to tell God, no. You know, the, the story of Jonah could have gone a different way. It could have got, gotten the way, as, and as Jonah sailed to Tarshish where he wanted to go, he was eaten by a big fish, and it ate him and killed him. Wow. I'll never say no to God again. Lesson learned. But that's not how the story of Jonah goes, right? Three days in the belly of that fish, Jonah realized God was giving me a second chance. He went to Nineveh and preached a message that drew many to come to know him. How about in the New Testament, Peter? Remember Peter? Sometimes I think that what Peter did when Christ was crucified was worse than what Judas did. Because Peter, that loud mouth, he proclaimed that under no circumstances would he ever deny Jesus. Everyone may fall away, but I, I won't. Judas never made that statement. At least Judas was true to himself, not Peter. I'll never deny Christ. And what happened in the courtyard of Caiaphas? He denied Christ three times. God gives Peter a second chance. That could have disqualified him from ministry right there. Peter, you're not a guy who can stand up when the heat is turned on. I'm going to use someone else, but no. At that breakfast by the beach, Jesus asks Peter, Will you follow me? The next time we see Peter, it's in Acts chapter 2. When he's standing before thousands of people and he's proclaiming Jesus Christ. Peter took advantage of that second chance. What about Paul? Remember the great apostle Paul? Paul is a murderer. Paul is not a guy you would hire into your company. He's got a bad record. On his way to Damascus to persecute and see to it that Christians are killed. And Jesus met Paul there on the road to Damascus. And Jesus could have snapped his little uh, figurative fingers and he would have dropped dead. There, there goes a murderer. See, Christians, I have protected you. But Jesus met Paul on the way to Damascus, or Saul at that time by his name. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul in his heart knew as a Pharisee when the Messiah speaks he has the power of his life in his hand he realized that he was given a second chance when he met Jesus on the way to Damascus from that moment on to the day he met his Lord he lived his life for Jesus four missionary journeys, the last one to Rome, standing before kings and princes, standing before 
the pagans, proclaiming about Jesus. A man transformed when he's been given a second chance. John Mark abandoned Paul in his ministry, abandoned the work of God at the most critical time. If it was not for the encouragement of Barnabas to lift John Mark up, that would have been it. But John Mark realized that he was given a second chance. He ministered with Barnabas, and he ministered with Paul. In fact, Paul requests for him to come while he was in prison to help him. And then also ministered alongside Peter, from whose account we get the gospel of Mark. Given a second chance, how did he live his life? He lived his life in the service of the Lord. They did something with their life. What about you? You and I, everyone here, is a recipient of God's second chance. How then will you live your life? I pray that it will be radically different than how you stepped in here this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder of your word. Reminding all of us that if not for your gracious love, we would not be here. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. Thank you that it is through him and him alone that we receive true second chances. And because of that standing of approval in your sight through the blood of the cross, we want to live out transformed lives. We want to live changed lives. We want to be like the David and the Peter and the Paul of old. When they came to an understanding that gracious God has given them another lease of life to have the privilege to live for Him, they did something with their lives. Lord, I want my life and I want the lives of the men and women here this morning to count May we not leave from this place to jump into the cesspool of sin and dirty our robes again. But with the new robes given to us this morning, hearts that are cleansed, lives that are approved, we depart from this place with a new mission, a mission to live this life for you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.